I love the Global Leadership Summit. It is this annual event. We host a site right here. It is hosted by Christians, and they don't only bring together the the exceptional pastors to their faculty team, but they bring in world-class leaders from business and education, sports, entertainment, politics, nonprofit world. People are on the front lines when it comes to some of the world's biggest and most complex problems, problems like poverty and immigration and racism and human trafficking and more. And as I mentioned, we're going to be one of the host sites this August. We'd love for you to, to come and join us. Well, two years ago, they brought in a professor from Harvard Business School, and she presented this framework that I think is so helpful. Here we can put it up on the screens for you. Her name is Amy Edmondson. She's done a lot of research specifically in the area of how do you create an environment where people really thrive? What does it take? And she identified two primary elements. She said you want to be able to create high safety and you want to be able to create high standards. She says when it feels emotionally safe but we're not challenged, not a lot of growth. When there's high challenge but it's not safe, lots of stress. When the standards are low and it's not safe to challenge people, then you just want to keep your head low, right? You don't want to get in trouble. But when people know that we care about you as an individual, when people know you're in a culture where it's not just safe to ask questions, it's encouraged to ask questions, where it's a sign of maturity that you admit, I don't have all the answers. And when those around you are committed, they want to bring out the best that's in you. When that's the environment, high safety, high challenge, that's when people flourish. If you're taking notes, let's dive right in. I want to invite you to write this down. People flourish in spaces where there's high safety and high standards. And wasn't that the original intent behind Title IX? The big idea picture behind Title IX, as I understand it, that legislation, was to create spaces where women can thrive. Spaces that recognize the uniqueness of their bodies, as well as the historical challenges that they've faced in their lived experiences as females. To also then provide environments and opportunities for women of all ages with their unique blends of interests and talents and personalities and skills. A places and spaces where they can go and they can be affirmed and they can be celebrated and supported. Well, if you're just taking or just joining us, we are in part seven of an eight-part series where we're doing the best we can to offer a distinctly Christian perspective on gender and identity. So here's the question we're going to wrestle with today. How do we consistently apply Title IX principles today? How do we do that? What, what does that look like with all the new realities around us? Throughout history, authentic followers of Jesus have been on the leading edge of efforts to create safe spaces for women. Places where women are seen and they're known and they're loved and they're given opportunities to thrive. We see that in Jesus, and we see that his disciples picked that up. Today, there are a lot of people who don't feel, though, that they fit in those categories of male and female, at least as it's been historically understood. This was really good. As, as one, well, good and touching, uh, as one transgender person put it, they said, it's like this. Imagine you have two pieces of a puzzle that don't fit, but you're trying to put them together. That's how they describe their experience. People in the trans community, on average, again, everyone's an individual, but on average, they experience much higher levels of anxiety and depression and suicide. 
So as believers, how do we then ensure that people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, how do we ensure they're seen and they're known and they're loved and they're given opportunities to thrive, especially given their unique challenges? Okay, and then the challenge though is, okay, how do we do both? How do we ensure that we're not going backwards when it comes to the rights of biological women as we try to create these spaces? That is a big lightning rod right now for all kinds of controversy and all kinds of, 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 of disagreement. And I, what I want to do right now is just hit pause for just a second. I want to talk to the men here. One of the things that's really important for us is that we don't leave it to the women to advocate for themselves. That's really, really important. Nor should our friends who are experiencing gender dysphoria have to be advocating for themselves. So men, can I get a commitment? We're, we're in, right? We're in on this. Let's show up in this important conversation. All right, well, today, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about how do we protect the rights of women as we also try to provide spaces where people with the different emerging gender identities can experience high safety and high challenge too. All right, so let's, let's start here. There's another place to, in your notes, if you can write this down. We won't solve complex problems with simplistic paradigms. It's fundamental to, to any, any going forward. We won't solve complex problems with simplistic paradigms. For example, take the world of sports. Imagine if, imagine this. So go back in time when women really didn't have many spaces to really compete in, in sports. Imagine if back then people, as they began rethinking stereotypes that, that oh, sports are for guys. Remember, imagine if back then People in positions of influence, they just said, ah, this is a craze. It's just a craze. The only reason that this is even an issue is because our culture has an indoctrinated women to believe the delusion that women should be able to compete in athletics. Imagine if that were the stance people were taking, that we were just categorically dismissing it. Women have no place in athletics. That's not going to work, right? All right, so imagine then the other extreme. Imagine when, when this was first coming to the forefront. Imagine if those in positions of influence simply said, you're right. You are right. I, identities, they are just social constructs. And so, women, you want to get involved in sports? You go right ahead. You can join any of the men's teams that you want. You can sign up for men's football. You can sign up for men's basketball. You can sign up for the all-male baseball team or all-male track team. What's going to happen? if that's the only space where you can compete, is against all guys. We are not going to solve complex, complex problems with simplistic paradigms, which is what the loudest and most influential voices seems are doing right now. They're giving us two simplistic narratives to choose from. There's a lot of loud voices that are either saying this is completely a craze and they're dismissing it as, as simply that. And then there's another group of really loud voices who are saying, people who say what they are, we should accept what they say that they say that they, they are. It's one of these two paradigms, and nobody can question that. Jesus did teach us to value childlike faith. But here's something about childlike faith that struck me, and I think it's worth writing down. Childlike faith in a good father is a step towards maturity. If you're placing your childlike faith in a good father who can lead you and equip you and, and help you develop, 
That is a step towards maturity. Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. And as we draw from the rich and the nuanced teaching of the Bible, we are introduced to concepts like spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and how a humble reverence for our Creator and His ways, that's the beginning of wisdom. One of the many, many, many reasons that billions of people have been drawn to authentic Christianity is that authentic Christianity is grounded in reality. It's grounded in reality, not idealism. And let's look at an example of what I'm talking about. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. I, I was wrestling this, talking with Jason and, and, and Dan. I'm like, I just keep getting pulled back to the scripture, and I'm not, is this the one? And, and I couldn't shake it, and then Jason's like, well, probably then you should uh, go with that. All right, so anyway, 1 Timothy, it is a real first century letter written by a man named Paul to a young man that he was mentoring in the Christian faith named Timothy. And one of the things you're going to see here is there's an attentiveness to the poor and the marginalized, and that is something that's in our DNA as Christians. But how do we do that well? How do we do that well? Often, people who've got good intentions, I want to help, I want to help, what they end up doing actually ends up hurting in the long run, so much so they even wrote a book called that, When Helping Hurts. It's just, it's our tendency. A lot of times we jump in, we think, this is how we help, because we have good hearts. But often the way that we're helping doesn't help people flourish. It ends up hurting. So Paul is addressing that. Paul was the most effective church planter the world has ever known. And central to the values that he embedded in the churches that he planted was to ensure that those communities of faith we care for those who are vulnerable. We care for those who are marginalized. And in that time and in that place, widows were among the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. So let's take a look at some practical guidance of of how did Paul instruct this person who's mentoring the faith, how did he instruct them to try to create a space where these widows could both be safe and also flourish? All right, let's uh, start with verses 3 through 6. Paul writes to Timothy, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow is left all alone. She set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. All right, so does Paul here advocate for a one-size-fits-all policy? No, no, he doesn't. Um, in fact, he, 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 has, he gets pretty nuanced based on individual needs for individual situations. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 here. 7 through 10. Command these things as well, so that they may be without, above, without reproach. For if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled uh, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. All right, so there are a whole lot of things... (laughs) in this passage that can trip us up and that we could really um, maybe should explore another time, especially in our culture. The big picture point that's relevant to today's conversation is this. 
If you've met one widow, you've met one widow. How do we both create a safe space where individuals are seen, known, loved, and cared for? And how do we create a challenging space where everyone, including these widows, are invited into the hard work of how do you participate in this community? What do you contribute from your place? For example, in here, it's in addition to making sure that resources are allocated to those who need it most, right before the section that we're looking at, there are extended instructions given to Timothy about the importance of sound doctrine and how easy it is for people to be deceived. In the chapter right before this one, Paul even reveals there are, quote, deceitful spirits that are at work in this world. And demons, he says, and, quote, liars whose consciences have been seared. Do you ever see any folks like that? And these are strong words. Now, on top of all that, Paul points out there are people who are going to actively oppose the Jesus movement. They're going to be looking for ways to discredit us. And he says it's important that all of us in this situation where we can be deceived, in this situation where people are looking for us to, to stumble, looking for reasons to accuse us, we should be, all of us, acting in ways above, beyond reproach. Paul is challenging Timothy to create a culture that calls out the best in every person. Now, there's people living halfway around the world at a different time, different culture. Some of what Paul says about widows, it sounds patriarchal. And one of the reasons that we encourage people to get study Bibles, good study Bibles, is because when you start to dig into this text, you start to realize, no, that, that that's not that simple. The language that Paul uses for widows here in chapter 5 these are the same high standards. The language mirrors the language that he uses for overseers of the church in chapter 3 of the same letter. He's calling us all to these high standards. And he writes, summarizes verses 14 through 16 like this. He says, so this is my wish, that the younger widows should give the enemy no opportunity to slander us. Some you see have already gone off after Satan. For if any believing woman has relatives who are widowed, let him help them, that the church, let her help them, so that the church won't be burdened. This way, it can help the widows who are truly widows. It would have been a lot easier for Paul, instead of going to all of this nuance, it would have been a lot easier for him to just say, let's just have one-size-fits-all policies. If you're a widow, sign her up for the widow benefit package. But Paul... He was a seasoned, reality-based leader. In fact, one of my sources put it this way. They go, there's dreamers and there's doers. They go, Paul, he was a unique combination of both. Paul was committed to real-world application, and he felt compelled to call out the importance of distinguishing those who really needed help from those who didn't, to call out the importance of not looking only to our own needs, but to the needs of those around us to call out the reality that there are false teachers and there's even spiritual forces that are leading people astray and to call out and to encourage his churches to act in a way that made it hard for skeptics to slander them. Paul framed out what it looks like. How do we care for vulnerable populations? He didn't provide this simplistic one-size-fits-all approach. And if you're taking notes, I want to write this down, this takeaway from that. Adult minds are capable of nuance. Adult minds are capable of nuance. Um, so can I get a show of hands from our 10 through 25-year-olds? 
Got at least some of them here. 10 through 25-year-olds. All right. <laughs> you just missed it? 25. 10 through 25. Um, I just heard something. I just read something this week. They said that your generation is the most, and I quote, close-minded and intolerant of, of the generations that, that have come. That all of us that have gone before you aren't as close-minded and, and intolerant as your generation. And knowing you guys, you know, I already know you challenge that stereotype. The fact that you're here, even doing that. But for those that are, that are listening, I, I want to challenge all of you. Let's defy that stereotype here. Let's not be like those around us who are just conforming to the groups around us and just listening to these narratives. Let's assume a posture that is humble and it is learning, always learning, always growing. Because it is easier for all of us to just choose a side. There's so much pressure. Pick your side. And it's a lot easier to just have simplistic answers. Here it is, one size fits all. But I I, I love this reminder that was in the book Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. He said this, he goes, lazy accusations don't embody God's kindness. Isn't that good? Lazy accusations don't embody God's kindness. Love is not efficient. Can I get an amen to that? Love is not efficient. Love is not easy. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Jesus set an example for us to follow. What does love look like? In in Christian circles, we call it the incarnation. He who was from the beginning of time, in the fullness of time, stepped into our world. He walked among us, full of grace and truth. He met people where they were at. He saw them. He knew them. He loved them. And around this man, who was God incarnate, people felt comfortable enough to ask questions. And yet, they were being challenged to what? Trust him completely. Trust the Father completely. Okay, what does all of this have to do with our conversation about Title IX spaces? Here's what it has to do. There's no simple answers. There's no simple answers. I'm going to ask a bunch of questions before I'm done here. There's no simple answers to our current situation. Our culture right now is rapidly, rapidly trying to integrate emerging gender identities into just about every aspect of our, of, our, of our society. Trying really hard. Okay, how do we do this? How do we integrate these new realities into our culture? And what I really want to caution us about, what I want to advocate for, is to ensure that as we attempt to ensure that people who identify as trans with their unique needs, individual situations are able to flourish, how do we also ensure the same for women? One of my top priorities in preparing for this series was to listen to a wide range of diverse, unfiltered voices. And one of the voices that I didn't know before I started um, this journey and that I got introduced to was a woman named Kara Dansky. She's an author, she's an an attorney, she's a consultant, and she's been a women's right advocate for a long time. So much of our attention in our culture has been focused on the rights of people, understandably so, with these emerging gender identities. Kara is one of many women 
and women's rights advocates who believe we are in danger of undoing so many of the things that we've been working on for the last 2,000 years, things that Jesus began to institute, things that have helped women create spaces where they're seen, they're known, they're loved, and they can flourish. I would hope that seeing that compromise is something that no one would want to see. Here's an excerpt of a letter that she sent to Congress in response to some new pending legislation. She said, the nation has not had the national conversation that we need to have about the far-reaching implications of redefining sex to include gender identity. We need to have that conversation before any legislation is enacted. Women and girls need separate spaces from male people. Then she adds this. She goes, it's appalling that these things need to be said in the 21st century. She's cautioning about think before we undo in the historical blink of an eye work that's been 2,000 years in the making. For example, sports. In sports, we have categories. We've got ages. We've got weight classes. We've got different divisions based on the side of your school. We have amateur versus pro. In sports, we also have rules. Rules that are in place to ensure that people aren't taking performance-enhancing hormones or other treatments that give you an advantage within your category. There are numerous reasons why the vast majority of sports have men's and women's categories. So how do we, here's one of these questions I refer to, how do we, in love and maturity, listen to and respond to the desires of athletes in non-binary categories while at the same time, in love and with maturity, protect spaces that were purposely created for women. And it's not just the spaces, it's also the achievements. I was thinking about a girl I know. um, I can't remember if she holds two or one of the records at Concordia, down the road, Concordia High School, but her name's up there. It's posted on the wall. She, She ran these exceptional times, and she deserves to have her name up there for that recognition of being the best female to ever run those events in her school history. If a biological male who identifies as female breaks that record, shouldn't there be a way to recognize both achievements? Shouldn't we be able to figure that out without erasing one of those achievements? In addition to providing spaces for biological women to flourish when it comes to achievement at sports or at work, Dansky and many others are raising questions about privacy and about safety. How do we respect the privacy of biological women who aren't comfortable sharing bathrooms or locker rooms with biological men? And how do we make every effort to protect the safety of women from biological men who would look for opportunities to invade a woman's space for the purpose of causing harm. And now this is again where I hit pause and I, and I sincerely say we need to be quick, quick to defend harmful stereotypes. Stereotypes that are often associated with men who identify as women. It's important that we say we, we cannot fall into those stereotypes. And at the same time, being mature, thinkers, being adults, it's also important to remember that we got to be consistent and take the same types of precautions that we take in other situations. And there's not going to be any analogy that's perfect. All analogies break down, but maybe this one will help. At least it was helpful for me. When we go onto a plane, we ask that everybody goes through a screening process. Why do we do that? We do that because we're going to go into a vulnerable space. 
We don't do that because we distrust any one individual. We just know that there are some people, given the opportunity, will take advantage of that vulnerable space and exploit it. In her book, Dansky Documents, she documents example after example after example of people who've done that, just that thing. Incidents in a California spa, in women's prisons. And one of the ones that was really hard to even understand how this happens is in shelters that were designed for women who are victims of abuse by men. That this is happening there. Can you, I don't don't understand that. How do we, in love and maturity, listen and respond to the needs of individuals in non-binary categories while at the same time, in love and with maturity, protect spaces that were designed to protect the unique needs of women. It's going to take, to do that, it's going to take nuanced adult thinking. Another area where many voices are calling for more nuance is when it comes to gender-affirming care. How strong do people feel about this? You know, usually when someone puts a forward, or in the, in the book, when they make their dedication, they say, oh, to my loving spouse, to my puppy, whatever that I care so much about. This is how Dansky dedicates her book. To quote, the parents who watch in silent agony while a vicious industry works relentlessly to annihilate their children's bodies and lives. If you want to know why she came to that conclusion, look at her book. Over the last year, the reason that we include this in our list is I've come across countless people who share that perspective. There are people who advocate for women and kids who feel very, very, very strongly about what they're observing when it comes to the types of treatments that are being recommended to minors and how those treatments are determined. I think it's important to listen to those unfiltered voices. And last week I mentioned there's voices that have found more measured and more nuanced. Here's how Mark Yarhouse and Judy Sadusky express their concerns. They say this. We see the gender-affirming model as well-intentioned and it wants to reduce shame for kids who do not experience their sense of self as congruent with their birth sex. In practice, however, we're concerned that it is overconfident confident in the ability of children to reliably share their gender identity and experience. It makes children the experts on their own experience and the experts on appropriate steps forward at an age when we understand children to be changing and growing a great deal. There's a large and growing number of voices that are calling for more research, calling for full disclosure of risks before we prescribe treatment, especially for minors, that have irreversible long-term effects on their bodies. If you would like to explore one of the best, out of all the things that I read, one of the best treatments of that specific topic I was just talking about, weighing out what's said about gender-affirming care, chapter three of this book, Emerging um, Gender Identities, uh, best, best treatment I've seen out there so far. All right, so how do we, the question, how do we in love and maturity advocate well for the health care of minors and how do we come alongside families who are making extremely difficult decisions? It's going to take mature adult thinking and conversations. Well, today, like I said from the onset, we left a lot of big questions out there. A lot of big questions out there. So as we begin to bring our time together to a close, let me give you a two-part challenge related to that. If you're committed to being a champion for spaces that are both safe and challenging for both biological women and other gender identities, here's challenge number one. When you see four lights, speak up. That one might need a little explanation. 
So there's a, a, a Star Wars spinoff called Star Wars The Next Generation, or Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. And in one of the episodes, there's a character, his name's Captain Picard, and he gets captured. And this alien that captures him wants to break him, wants to break him down. So the alien says, all you need to do to escape all of this, all this pressure, all of this stuff that we're throwing at you, all you got to do to get it to stop is just tell me there's five lights behind me. But there are four. He goes, I'm not going to do that. There's four lights. And so this episode goes on. They're trying everything they can to just break him down, putting all this pressure on him. Just say it. Just say there's four lights and it'll be over. No, just say it. Say it. There's five. Say there's five. No. Well, the pressure continues. He's about to give in and he gets rescued. And as he's being debriefed, he goes, I was about to say it. And here's what's even worse. He goes, I was starting to think there were five. Now, let me start by saying what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is dig into your position. When you see something that you don't agree with, dig in and just go to war. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, that's what we've been highlighting not to do for the last six weeks. Here's what I am saying. If someone's telling you there's five lights and you see four, say something. And do it with those principles we've been talking about throughout the series. Why is a serpent innocent as doves? Know who you're talking to. All of those things. But speak up. And going back even further as we're applying those principles, before we say anything, remember to ask, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Okay, why is this important? Because these two dominant narratives, they don't provide the spaces where people flourish. And if we don't speak up and challenge these narratives, if we're just like, I'm giving up on the pressure, then these things that people often think they're doing to help end up hurting. When I hear people say that it's as simple as this is just a fad, this is just a craze, it's part of a woke agenda, I see four lights. I don't see five. Why do I see four? Because I personally know people that have gender dysphoria. They're not out there pushing an agenda. They have heard different terms now that they're like, that, that, I resonate with that. That is my experience. And they're just trying their best to live life. They're just trying to be seen. They're trying to be known. They're trying to be loved. They want to have spaces that feel safe. They want to have opportunities to fulfill purpose and, and, and find fulfillment and happiness. And there's a whole lot of people that are coming alongside them and they don't have agendas they're trying to push. Their agenda is, I'm trying to help people. And so when I hear people just categorically say, it's just a craze, I see four lights. I don't see five. And when I hear people say that a biological man should be able to self-select into a space that is designed to protect the privacy of biological women or the physical safety of women or one that's designed to allow women to compete and achieve in a specific biology-based category, I see four lights. When a biological male who identifies as female wins an NCAA title, or is named the first women to whatever, I see four lights. I don't see five. Now, for, for the sake of time, I'll have more to say about this in the next ECC mail. Um, I'll provide a link to one of the best articles I've ever seen. Um, Mary Lochner from our church, she's a counselor. She sent me this link. It's the best I've seen as far as just taking a real 
approach from a person who's in the sports world, deep into it, a sports science. He says, let me, let me tell you some of the myths that are out there. Let me tell you, tell me some of the facts. Does a great job at that, along with some other links on the topic. As we do our best to love and to listen to and to do our part to help individuals with different gender identities flourish, let's also make sure that we listen to the voices of women. So that's challenge one. Let's do our part. Even though it's hard and unpopular, say something. Say something and use best practices when you do. Not with arrogance, not trying to win an argument, but just don't go along with narratives that are generating so much momentum. So that's challenge one. Here's challenge two. The challenge is for us to set a different example. As Paul was trying to do with Timothy, Timothy, let's try to create a culture that really looks different. And this next one's going to require a little more explanation too. Here, here it is. The cross of Christ was the ultimate counterintuitive expression of high safety, high standards. Remember that thing we opened with that chart? People flourish, high safety, high standards. The cross of Jesus Christ and the invitation that Jesus extends to us, take up your cross and follow him, that is the ultimate expression of that. The act of Jesus taking up the cross to die for us. What greater expression is there of I am with you? I am for you. I love you. Greater love has no one than this that they would lay down their life for their friends. It's the ultimate expression of safety in that way. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then as far as challenge, what higher challenge do you get then? Hey, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. High challenge, high safety. In a world where the cultural narrative puts the individual at the center of the universe, in a world where we're being pressured, conform to cultural narratives that don't help people flourish, not in the long run, and at the expense of others often, we're shaped by a cross. We're shaped by a cross. A cross that reminds us we're loved. A cross that compels us, laid on our lives for another. A cross that brings out the best in us. It compels us to desire to see other people flourish. That is our goal, to see other people flourish. A cross that shapes high safety among us in our culture because it levels the playing field. It levels the playing field. We are all sinners. And we're never going to extend more grace to somebody else than has already been extended to us. Never. It's a level playing field. The cross also shapes a high challenge culture, this challenge of self-sacrifice to not only be like, what's in it for me? How can I contribute to this culture? How can I care for other people? That's the kind of community that Jesus cast a vision for. That's what I believe was at the heart of what Paul was trying to tell Timothy and coach him towards. A community where we know that people care about us as individuals, where we are encouraged to ask questions, where we don't readily admit that we don't have all the answers, and that we're willing to speak into other people's lives because we care. Have you thought about this? How it might affect you in the long run? Have you thought about how this could affect others? We have those conversations. Culture where we want those around us to just have the best of within them brought out. That's when people flourish. That's when people flourish. That's the kind of culture where we can begin to have the kind of conversations where we can actually take on these questions. Do we right now have the answers to these questions? But I do know this. We are uniquely positioned as Christians to create a culture where answers can be found. Let me pray.
Lord, we're so thankful that you didn't just throw out principles, but you gave us a tangible example. Thank you for the unparalleled gift of your son, for the unparalleled gift of your spirit. Thank you for people like Paul and the writings that have been passed down to us where we can learn from him. Lord, we pray that we would be worthy of these, this calling that we've received, that we'd be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.